we're heading back into the book of First John. Um, uh, we started this series in February. We called it Walk This Way. Thank you, Run DMC and Aerosmith. But uh, uh, we called it that because uh, John, in his writing, he's uh, a disciple of Jesus. He's been instrumental in the development of the first century, uh, first century church. He's, he's visited and probably planted some churches, we think, close to Ephesus in the ancient world, but he's, he's kind of been their pastor, and he's, he's been taken away from them, and, and as so much of your Bible uh, kind of unfolds this way, he's writing to his former uh, church um, the instructions that he has for them and how they should live. And, and the overarching theme is, is, is God wants us to walk this way. In the first half of his letter, he talks about walking in the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. He's talking about it in lots of different ways, but mostly he's saying, hey, make sure you're, you're, you're doing and thinking the right things. Get things square in your mind, all right? Walk in the light. Choose the light of God over the darkness of the world and the things that the world would have for us. So we talked about that in February, March. But now we're shifting, as John does, uh, in this walk this way theme into what he encounters next. He's going to talk to us about love. Walk in love. Bible talks a lot about love. Have you noticed that? It is a uh, vast, um, hard to get your arms around subject. Everybody wants it. Uh, some of us are good, better than others at giving it. Uh, but God commands it of all of us. It says in 1 John 3.11, we're going to read this verse a little bit later today, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. For the rest of the summer, it's the summer of love. <laughs> That's different. Anyway, uh, but we're going to talk about love uh, as John talks about it here in his letter, this first epistle that he wrote. Uh, he starts uh, by talking about love in terms of the families, the spiritual families um, that we are a part of. If you are a part of God's family, like he said, we are to live in love. We're to love one another. But if, if you fall out of love, in fact, if you experience hatred, anger, bitterness towards other people, you, you've, you've moved kind of out of the house of God, from the family of God, and, and back into the family of his adversary. We're going to read a verse that makes that very clear. But before we get going, let's talk about families in general, shall we? Anybody here from a family of some sort? Yeah, uh, okay, good. Uh, uh, turn to someone next to you, even if they're not from your family, and, and answer this question. Uh, who do you most resemble from your family uh, tree? Is it your mom's side or your dad's side? And then if you have kids, most, some of us do, uh, who do they most resemble? Who do they take after the most? Uh, your side or your wife's or husband's? Go ahead. Talk about family resemblances. All right, probably not the first time you've discussed this. Most families, all you got to do is look at the picture, right? The Owen Mills portrait. Oh, that one looks like that one. And that one looks like that one. There's some families, it, okay, we're done talking. Does everybody hear me talking again? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> Give them an inch. All right. Uh, <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, you just have to look at the family portrait to see who takes after who. There, there's certain families, and it, it's just uncanny sometimes. There, there's a family in our church. We love them. Uh, Steve and Wendy, Wendy Stow, they, they had a son named uh, Jonah. And when Jonah was born, uh, some 16, 17 years ago, whatever it is now, and he first was being held by Wendy, I was like, 
the, the, the resemblance is still uncanny to me. I mean, I've never seen a son look so much like his mother. And, and uh, uh, even in my family, uh, my youngest two take after my side. Like if you look at my, pictures of my son Cooper at 17 and put them next to mine, has anybody ever done that? Put dad's picture next to the kids at the same stages. It, it's pretty close. And Kai, uh, my daughter, and my son Cooper, um, uh, they're about 18, 16, 18 months apart, but they, uh, they were always mistaken for twins. And even these, you know, we have a picture of them. I should have brought it. I didn't do it this service either. But there's a picture of uh, my daughter Kai taking her hair and swooping it over like Cooper's haircut, right? And they both kind of look in there. They're taking a selfie and they're making the same. Cooper makes his face. He, he does this. I don't know why he does it. But he, and they're both making the Cooper face. And it's like, wow, those two people are related. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, in our physical families, we not only uh, take on each other's genetic or physical traits, but we kind of mimic each other in, in how we are. Is anybody growing up to become more and more like your father than you ever wanted to be? Does anybody know what I'm talking about there? You're just becoming your father. Uh, it's, it's just we're, we, we, we share DNA, we share life experiences, and here too we become like each other, look like each other. The same can be said of spiritual families. It's Father's Day in a couple weeks, so let's talk about our spiritual fathers, at least the two options that we have when it comes to spiritual family life. In verse 10 of 1 John chapter 3, it says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. We got two daddy options. That's what I'm calling this uh, sermon. Who's your daddy? Yeah. Okay. It is evident who are the children of God, whose, uh, whose people, uh, the people whose father is God, and it's evident who are the children of the devil, who, the people whose, uh, who, whose life resembles or, or is stemming from, flowing from, uh, a, a different kind of father, uh, the devil. It's, it's whoever does not practice righteousness. Those are the children who are not of God. And, and, and nor is it the one who does not love his brother. So put another way, maybe a simpler way, the children of the devil, their markers are the characteristics of our enemy. Unrighteousness, evil, hatred, not love. The children of God, converse, conversely, are marked by righteousness. John doesn't say that, but he infers it. And certainly by God and his love. And the churches that John are right, is writing here, uh, are the ones that he's writing in, in this first letter of his, uh, have, have been infiltrated by some false teaching. Uh, those who had uh, started the faith, started the church with them, had started adopting some Gnostic ideas, which is, you know, these elevated, uh, you know, we're way smarter than you about God kind of mentalities. And, and, and they were bringing those ideas into the church. And one of those ideas is it's okay to hate the people who disagree with you. I'm so glad we live in a world where that is not the case, where uh, you know, no one would ever go online and say that I hate you because you don't vote like I do, or I hate you because you don't believe like I do, or I hate you because you have this position and I have this position on a particular issue. So is everybody picking up the sarcasm on that? Um, it was present in the churches that John was writing to. People were actually saying, you don't have to love. You can follow Jesus just fine and, and hate all you want. And John, in very stark language, is saying, hey, man, 
You want to know who your daddy is? If you love spiritually, your father is God. But if you hate and live unrighteously, your father is the devil. We want to talk about these two families as we go on today, but let's rename them. Uh, let's call them the old mans and the new mans. Can we do that? The old mans and the new mans? Some of you might be familiar with, you know, uh, modern uh, film, uh, and, and you might have thought of Gary Oldman. He's a, uh, one of my uh, favorites when it comes to movies. He's a good actor. Not great movies, but he's a good actor. Uh, but I'm not talking about Gary Oldman. And, I'm, and some of you, immediately when I said Newman, you were like, oh, Seinfeld, right? Yeah. Hello, Newman, right? We're not talking about either of these guys. We're talking more uh, in terms of what Paul describes in his letter to the Corinthians. His second letter in chapter 5, verse 17, he, he pens these well-known words. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new man, a new creation, a new woman, right? We're new. Uh, the old man has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Two options in the spiritual realm. Only two. Old man, new man. Let me talk to you about what each one does. We've kind of already started in, but just so we're clear, old men's, old man's, uh, they live to hate and divide. We're going to see that spelled out here as John continues to write. New men's, new creations, live to love and provide. Let me just kind of paint the picture for us. If you're kind of new to the whole Bible story and what, what the Bible says about us, um, God created us for himself. Check, everybody with me? Created all that it is and he created us last. And he created us to be his vice regents, those who, who tended to and, and, and lorded over or provided for his, the rest of his creation. Now we are created in his image uh, to worship him but early on in our story, it tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that the first humans decided, nope, not going to do that. And they walked away, disobeyed, rebelled against the one true God. They, they, they said, we're going to go and do it our own. Uh, God, if you know the story, comes to them and says, well, listen, that, that's not going to work for me. Um, I'm going to expel you from this paradise that I've created for you. And you are going to bear the mark of sin, the weight, the burden, the separation that it brings. Sin is going to keep you from me. It will bring death uh, to all. But I love you enough to not just shake the extra sketch and go home. I'm going to continue in life with you. Uh, uh, allowing you to decide if you want to stay in the old or in faith and in following me, find the new. Old man, new man. Old man, uh, the old men's live to hate and divide. The new men's live to love and provide. Let me just say this last thing too. I know a lot of you have by faith received uh, Jesus Christ and, and in, in doing so have become new creations. Isn't that great that God lets us do that? If that's not you, that's why we're here. First and foremost, we are here as a church to go and make disciples, to see people follow Jesus Christ. And if you, you aren't following them yet, I'm, I believe God brought you here, or, or here, here's the camera. He, he brought you online so that we, we could tell you about his gospel, his good news, and how you can have life with him and become a new man or a new woman in Christ. <clears throat> but here's the truth. Those of us who have found Christ, 
We frequent the old man far too often. You know what I'm talking about? We go back to who we were before we met Jesus all the time. It's called sin. <laughs> it's called choosing what you know, God uh, says not to do over what he says to do. It's like going back to where you're, you're from as a kid. Has anybody got like a hometown, this is not it, you're just here, but you grew up somewhere else? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, three of you. Uh, um, so the, for the three of us, we understand what it's like to go home. Uh, uh, my home is the Northeast. I grew up in Maine and New Brunswick, Canada. And there's a different way of talking up in Maine and New Brunswick, Canada. Okay, we don't live on a, a rural route. We live on a rural route. And where I, where I was from Canada, we don't say about, we say about. It's about. And, uh, and it's uncanny. When I go back to where I'm from, you give me two days, I'm talking like I did when I was seven. Because I'm just around all the people that talk like that. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you came from like, you know, deep south twang, and you've kind of, you know, trained yourself out of it. But you go back, and all of a sudden it's y'alls, and, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And you're eating cornbread, whatever. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's dumb. There's foods from where I'm from, right? There's foods from, I, don't, I never eat them until I go home. And my point is this. Can anybody tell I had a cup of coffee before I got up here? My point is this. That as spiritual things go, we, we go back to our old houses, the old man house. And we slide into the old man ways. Start talking and acting like we were before we became new. Uh, I want to address all of that today, and my hope is that we'll be reminded, first of all, if we've never met Jesus, how important it is for us to be saved and brought into a new man family with him. But if we've found Jesus, how important it is for us to be those who exemplify and provide the love of God to a world that desperately needs it, that we live in that and we don't settle for old man living uh, like it so often happens in our lives. Old men's, old men's live to hate and divide. Look at verse 12. Here we go. We should not be like Cain. John goes back to the first old men family, <laughs> all the way back to Genesis 4, the sons of Adam and Eve. He says we should not be like Cain, who was a son of Adam and Eve, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, a guy named Abel. When he talks about being children of the devil, he says, listen, let's go back to someone we've all heard about, uh, these first brothers, this first murder in human history. We should not be like that. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own, de his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain hated his brother so much that he ended uh, not just his relationship with Cain, or with Abel, but he ended the very life of Abel. Death and division. We talk about death all the time in spiritual conversations about spiritual death. And what we're saying is not like a physical death, like your life ends. We're saying that there's this separation from the one who is life, our God, and sin brings that separation. And so when we say that sin brings death, we're saying sin brings division from God. It's a separation from the one who gives life. It's what Cain did. He murdered Abel. Why did he murder him? Verse 12. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was just flat out doing the wrong thing. And here's why he was doing the wrong thing. Here's why you and I do the wrong thing. You ever wondered why you do the wrong thing? Why do I do the wrong thing? Why can't I just do what's right? I'll tell you. You want to know why? 
Because in those moments where you choose wrong, you are more consumed with you and your wants than you are with God and his. You're more focused on yourself and, and, and you know, making out for you, making things happen for you than you are in making things happen for the glory of God and for the sake of others. Almost always, that's what's happening. I can't think of a sin that isn't like that. It's kind of like those people. I was on vacation with Eleanor a couple weeks ago, and uh, there's a ton of this going on now as you walk through the cities of like Savannah. We were in Savannah and Charleston, did a couple days in both, had a great time. But everybody's doing this now. They're taking pictures of themselves in front of whatever they're taking a picture in front of. Okay, I'm not a big social media guy. Also not a big picture guy. There's like six on here. I just don't do it. I don't know why I carry it all the time. But I see the people who do. Has anybody noticed that people who are taking a picture of themselves can't function in the rest of society? Like, they think that all that's happening right now is this. And so they'll just back up and bump into someone who has a drink behind them, right, or, or, or whatever. This happens at, at, uh, at intersections all the time. Maybe you're not, they're not looking at themselves, but they're looking at their phones, and they're just focused in on me and what's happening with me, and the, the light turns green for the, you know, the first five seconds until we all, praise the Lord, you know, give them a little honk, right? And, uh, and then they know, right, and they snap out of it. But this is what happens. We get, there's this little function on here. You can flip your camera around. And I've seen, you know, mostly ladies, but some of you dudes too, you're just sitting there, and, and, and you're just so focused on you, you can't see anything else. That's what happened with Cain. Everybody remember the big, the big to-do, the big fracas, the, the, the cause of his anger that eventually became murder? He was, he was in, in chapter four, it tells us that he and Abel were both coming to worship God. We don't have this, the script as to how God had said, here's how I want to be worshiped. But we can kind of, you know, uh, deduce from, from what happened that God wanted first fruits. He wanted, he wanted the best from uh, this first family. And it tells us that Cain comes, he's a farmer, and he just kind of brings, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not going to eat this broccoli, so here, God, you can have it, Right? Some, maybe something like that. But Abel comes and he brings his very best, the first of his flocks. And the Bible tells us that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and he rejects Cain's sacrifice. So just so we're clear, Abel didn't do anything to Cain. But Cain, feeling the humiliation, the rejection that was you know, God's uh, you know, non-acceptance of his sacrifice, takes all of his anger out on who? An innocent one. Kind of reminds me of the cross. Remember, Jesus comes to the world. He's perfect. He never does anything wrong. He gives and gives and gives of himself. And then a bunch of people, a bunch of old men's, get together and they say, you know what? This guy's got to die. And they blame all of their problems. And they, they, they refuse to look at their own issues. And they pin them all on this innocent one, just like Cain did with Abel. Huh. Sin does this to us. It makes us prioritize and promote and protect self. It causes us to you know, blame everyone else, take it out on like the innocent guy, like I was just saying. Um, that's what old men's do. If you've read this story before about Cain and Abel, you know how it kind of pans out. In chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, verse 6, it says this, that, that God comes to Cain. First time in human history that pre-sin, God comes to a human and says, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? In fact, let me, let me paint a, a picture for you of how this could be different. He comes to Cain. He asks him three questions and gives him two statements. Let's walk through them. He says here in verse 6, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? First two questions are kind of synonymous, kind of the same question, just rephrased. 
He says, hey, bro, what's up? You ever come up to some of your family who's got, you know, and, and you're like, whoa, hey, what's going on? Not, can we be sure that God knows what's going on? God's not like, oh, I don't know what's happening right now. God knows always what's happening. Everybody gets that, right? But in the same way that he came to Cain and Abel's parents and said, hey, where are you? You know, what, what's going on? He's giving those who are created in his image to worship him and glorify him. He's given these first humans the chance to come clean, to be honest with them. About, and, and, and his hope is to, I believe, lead them in a, in a better path. We see that here in just a couple, a couple sentences. He comes to, to Abel, excuse me, to Cain, and he says, I know what's going on. I see what's happening in your heart, but hey, bro, why are you so angry? He says, why is your face fallen? Uh, who's ever said one thing and your face said another thing? Anybody know what I'm talking about there? Someone asks you, oh, you got to try this new recipe. I, and, they, and they give you, you know, a spoonful of it and you put it in your mouth and you're like, mm, oh, that's really good. You know, uh, uh, your face speaks louder than your words. Uh, it was all over Cain's face, his anger. Maybe his brow was furrowed, his teeth were clenched. He's, he's angry. And God's like, what's up? Then he asks this next question, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? All right. You might be new to the God story, but he is the God of the second chance. Anybody grateful for the fact that God is the God of a second chance? Okay, some of us are. Good. It's a great thing. Like, most scholars believe that, that Cain's sacrifice was emblematic of Cain's life. He just didn't really care about God, kind of like his parents had rebelled against uh, God and sinned the first time. Uh, Cain was living, kind of like, whatever, God. And, and so that's why he brought his very least in the, uh, the sacrifice to him. And so God comes to Cain and says, hey, Cain, we can fix this. It, it, if you do well... Won't we be okay? What a great gift that God gives us. Even when we haven't done well, he says, I'm good if we can just move this in a different direction. I'll accept your sacrifice next time. That's, all a, that's the only reason that I was rejecting it the first time. I just want from you what is right in this relationship. I'll accept it. Those are his questions. God makes a couple statements next. He says in verse 7, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Here's something you needed about uh, uh, old man tendencies. They're just waiting to pounce. They're like right there all the time. Peter, in his second letter, talked about how the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, that's the sin nature's nature. It's just, it, it's kind of just sitting there uh, waiting for us to give it a chance. Anybody played Jenga lately? Let's see if I can set this up. Probably not. Oh, it's not going to work. Not bad. Oh, that's really bad. All the better. Anybody played this game before? Everybody knows how to play, right? You just kick out some blocks and set them on top, right? Uh, but here's the thing about Jenga. It's never stable. Even in its most stable you know, uh, you know, setup, it's never stable. And as you take more and more things out of it, it gets less and less stable, right? So many of us think life is like totally stable. I got this. I can handle all these things, all these temptations, all of these issues. Uh, I, I can handle, you know, it's fine that I'm bitter in this relationship. It'll be fine. 
But here's, here's the nature of sin. You know, we just keep kind of, oh, I'm so nervous right now. We keep taking out things like this, and if we kept going, it'd get taller and taller and, and less and less stable until finally, we've all been there. Haven't we all been there? We finally come to a point where we've been leaning over into unrighteousness, into allowing more and more things into our lives, where finally, everybody get ready, everything goes splat. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that happened this week in your life. You made this decision or that decision that created that result. And it wasn't something that just kind of, I don't know where it happened. You, like Cain, had been sitting and pondering and weighing your options and trying to sort out the things that could work or might not. And, and then finally, like God warned Cain, you just leaned into the old man and off we go. Look what the next statement is. This is what God says to Cain. He says, it's desire, sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Profound theological statement here, just four chapters into the Bible. God explains what sin is all about and what our enemy, the devil, is all about. We think that the sinful stuff in our life is going to benefit us. It'll be great. If I can get away with this, I'll have all of these benefits. But what God says to Cain, he's like, hey, bro, just so you know, sin and its effect in your life is always contrary to what's best for you. It's desire, God, our enemy's desire, uh, sin's desire is to destroy you. That's what God, uh, or what Satan is, is dead set, uh, you know, uh, to do in life. He wants to destroy everything that God has made for good. And so God comes to Cain as he's weighing his options. And he says, hey, bro, I'm just telling you right now, if you lean into old man, if you go against my will, Sin's going to destroy you. So you must, in this moment, rule over it. You must stand up with my help to the sins that are pulling you in the wrong direction. If you don't know how the story ends, Cain doesn't listen. Kills his brother. Experiences the repercussions of that. And John uses him as his example here in the writing of his letter. He says, don't be like Cain. Don't go old man in this life. He was the evil one. Why did he murder? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The next thing he says is really interesting. What it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This is almost word for word uh, what Jesus had said in the gospel of John. John just kind of borrowing from his gospel and saying, don't forget, Jesus said this, if they hated me, which he said to his disciples at the time of his, his saying it. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You ever wondered about that? Why the world is so against those who choose the right way? It's because oldmans have always hated the newmans. And, and, and here's why. If you're wanting to go and do the wrong things, no one likes a narc. No one likes someone telling on them. No one likes someone blowing up their scheme. Remember that, like in middle school and stuff? All the other kids were going to cheat on the test, and you're like, I don't think we should do this. Maybe that wasn't you. Maybe the other kids were cheating on the test. But, but there was someone in that story who was like, hey, we shouldn't cheat. This is wrong. And everybody in that group was like, shut up. Goody two-shoes, bootlicker, other words. You're going to ruin it for all of us. We grow up and we go to work at businesses where some in the business are, are you know, undercutting and, and, and ripping off their employer. And you're a Christian and you're like, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. And they're like, shut up. 
It's the middle school lunchroom all over again. Maybe you're on that. And if you are, just so you know, that's old man stuff. But don't be surprised, Newmans, when the old men hate you. Look what it says in verse 14. Whoever does not love abides. It's the same word where we get abode, like our home. It's where we set up camp. Whoever does not love abides. Their abode is death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is that whole thing where if we fail as Newman to love as God loves, uh, what we do is we kind of drift out of the, the house of God, the, 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 the abode of God, and we start abiding instead in the, uh, the, the house of the world, in, the, in the, uh, the abode of our enemy. And it's as simple as that. Refusing to love, we go back to old man. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He was teaching. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And everybody in the crowd who was listening to Jesus that day at the Sermon on the Mount was like, you are right. That carpenter is correct. We should not murder. But then he says this, but I say to you, if you call someone in life a fool, racha, he said in the Aramaic. He said, if you call him a fool, it's as if you've killed them with your words. He was teaching, hey, God doesn't just say murder, like the actual physical act of murder is the only thing that he's against. He's, he's against all the things that could lead to, to murder. And can we all agree that hate is probably one of the ingredients in most of the murders that occur? So it's no wonder that John says, who, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And then he goes on and he says, uh, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, we've got to make sure we got this clear. Because if, if we just take that at, at face value or just, you know, don't dig deeper, it seems to be saying that anybody guilty of murder does not experience heaven, okay? But I just told you, anybody in here who has ever been angry at someone, who's ever held hatred in their heart against someone, it's as if, in Jesus' eyes, you have committed murder. They're put on the same level. Is everybody with me? So I am staring at a room full of, and you are staring at a pastor who is guilty of murder, we're all murderers according to the standard that Jesus has given. Does everybody get me on that? So John cannot be saying that murderers can't make it to heaven because no one gets in if that's the case. We all get it? So what is he saying? He's saying basically this. When we resort and return to old man living, when we go back to who we were before we met Jesus and we settle for that kind of life, then the eternal life of God, and we've got to understand, as John describes Jesus in his gospel, he, he says this in the first chapter, in Jesus was life. He, he goes on later, and Jesus describes himself as the resurrection and the life. He actually uses the word life as one of his names. I am the life. And so what John is saying here, I believe, is he's saying, hey, man, when we've got hateful thoughts, when we're uh, murderous in our, our attitudes towards other people, when love is not existing in us, then the eternal life, who is Jesus, is not a part of that circumstance or that situation. What he's essentially saying is, is Jesus can't be a part of hate. Jesus is not a part of hate. Does everybody hear me on that one? Jesus is love. God is love, it's going to say later in John's writing. 
And so if hatred is the choice that we're making, Jesus isn't a part of that. Hmm. Old men's live to hate and divide. New men's live to love and provide. I read it earlier, but let's read it again. Verse 11 says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's just basically quoting Jesus. He said this in this particular passage and in lots of other places in John. This is my commandment, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you aren't picking up anything else that I'm putting down, pick this up. New creations love. If you're in the Newman family, your marker is love. They will know that we are Christians by our, say it. Yeah, it's love. It's the chief command that God has given us to love God, to love others as we love ourselves. He writes it this way in 1 John chapter 3, the first half of verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we've gone from being an old man to a new man by the love that we show. It's the evidence of the change. John helps us understand the kind of love that he's talking about here. And that's where we're going to kind of finish up today. There's all kinds of love, right? Like, uh, Eleanor and I are going to go get some Tex-Mex after this. I love fajitas. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I love fajitas. That's not the kind of love that we're talking about. That's, kind of, that's the kind of self-serving, self-gratifying love that the world espouses, right? Do, you know, love in a way that it benefits you. But when God says love, that's, that's not the point at all. Uh, the, the word here is agape. It's this unconditional love. It's not tied to my benefit and what I receive in return. Love, for those of us who are new creations, is a love that lays life down for others. Newmans lay down their lives to love others. The follow-up verse to what Jesus says in John 15 is this verse. He tells us, this is my command, that you love one another. And then he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays his life down for his friends. He was speaking about himself. He was talking to his friends. He's saying, listen, you guys don't get this yet, but I'm going to lay my life down for you because I love you. It's why I've come to this planet. It's the work that my Father has called for me to do. So Jesus says, hey, man, this is my command. Love one another. And here's how it looks. You die. Love means dying to self for the sake of God and those whom he loves, which is everybody. So I got to love the people in my church? Yes. I got to love the people outside of my church? Yes. I got to love my friends? Yes. You got to love my enemies? Yes. So what I'm picking up, Mark, is that I got to love? Yes. That's what God says. I love uh, verse 16 in 1 John 3. It says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Hmm. Now, can we all um, agree that probably for most of us in here, loving someone will not actually cost us our lives? Does everybody kind of notice how that works? Certainly it happens. We just celebrated Memorial Day, and uh, certainly we have heroes in life, uh, our soldiers and our first responders who, uh, you know, fearlessly face death on our behalf, and it's 
It's the ultimate sacrifice. But most of us aren't going to have to do that when it comes to loving someone. Can we all agree? So what does he mean, sort of actually physically dying for someone else, when he says that we should love as Jesus loves? Well, he kind of paints the picture for us in the verses that remain. And what we're going to see is that he wants us to love by living generously in life. He gets real practical with this this group of early believers. He says, you want to know what love looks like? You may not have to die for someone, but you should be willing to sacrifice whatever God has given you for the sake of someone else. That's what love looks like. Verse 17 in 1 John says this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in that person? You know, I know it would never happen in your life, but Christians, Christians are, are notorious for talking a good game, but then not following through when it really counts. Does anybody notice that about Christians sometimes? You know, they show up in church, shiny, happy people, right? But then you get them out in life. I told the story about how a couple weeks ago, Johnny Doublebirds came up, right? And just, you know, if you weren't here, this guy, you know, accosted, and rightfully so, I, I messed up in traffic. I don't say rightfully so, but, but he came up and he was very angry. And then, and then we met at the uh, door of the restaurant we were going to. Both of us were going to the same place. Whoa. And uh, we, I apologized to him and he apologized to me. We were both coming from churches to have lunch. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of easy to f- go from new man to old man and, and to talk a good game, to p- you know, put on the persona that I'm a great follower of Jesus Christ, but when push comes to shove, we kind of revert and forget the extent to which God has called us to love. If, if we have um, what others need and we fail to give it to them, how does God's love abide in us? And James, uh, James asks a similar question. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of us says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. He's basically saying, hey, man, I'll pray for you. I hope someone else will give you something to eat. Be warm, be filled. Without giving them the things that they need for the body, James asks, what good's that? What happened there? Nothing. You know, you know what that's like? It's like getting all dressed to go to work out and then just kind of walking around, you know, crunch, a couple laps and walking back out. Nothing happened. Just so you're clear, you got all dressed up, you actually went to the place but nothing occurred because you didn't work out. Are you with me? Love's kind of the same way. Christians can get all dressed up. They can hang out here at the gym. But if you don't work out love, it isn't love. So we should be generous. We should go above and beyond. We all got this like lid of generosity. Because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, I know a lot of you. I love, a, I love all of you, but I, I love and know some of you better than others. And I know you're generous people. I love that about you. But everybody's got like the lid of generosity. Here's how generous I am. And if, you know, if God can be happy with this, that's where we're going. But God, everybody understands that God wants us to go and keep going beyond where we are with him in life to be willing to do whatever he calls us to do, even if it hits up against the lid of our generosity. I was hanging out on Thursday night with my family for family dinner, and we went to this uh, restaurant off of Columbus called uh, Chili's. Not that one. It's got an E at the end instead of an I. And so uh, this restaurant, Chili's, has really good uh, uh, Tex-Mex, and, uh, and, and the bill came, and just so we know, when it's family dinner, 
So I take the bill, and, and I uh, am married to a former server, and my daughter was a server in restaurants, and so I am an outrageous tipper. Uh, initially, out of, you know, duress, uh, but now I've just kind of gotten used to it, so I tip a lot, okay? So I'm like, well, I'm going to be watching you when I see you. Okay, all right, anyway. So, so I get the bill, and I tip a lot, right? And then I'm reading. Has anybody ever done this? You put down what you're going to give, and you sign your name, and then you look at the actual, you know, list of the things that you got, and it's then that I realized that the gratuity had already been added, right? Because, you know, parties of five or more, they just automatically put it in there. My first instinct, what, was you, what would yours be? Well, I need another copy of this bill because I gave you this. But guess what? I knew I was preaching this on Sunday. <laughs> and I was like, I'm on to you, Father. I know I got to get in front of everybody else and challenge them to be generous. I see what you're doing here. All right, Lord, we're going to let this ride. It was already a good tip as they factored it in, you know, on their own, but now it's a stupid tip. Thank you, Lord, right? <laughs> amen and amen. And here's the deal. Driving away, was I like, oh, man, I could have used that money. All of us could use some money. Gas is like 18 bucks a gallon right now, right? <laughs> we can all use money. But here's the deal. Look at me. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it tells us in the Old Testament. Everything we have is his. We're just holding on for a second. We're just, it's just ours for a minute. And it's his to do through us what he chooses to do. And so the Christians, the Newmans, should be the most generous, happy to give people in the world. It's just who we are. If we understand that what we have is not our own. There's people in this world um, who, who, who hit the lid and they just stay there. I'm, I'm, listen, and it's not just money. If, if you're a part of our church and you're not giving to the work of God here at our church, start. Just start somewhere. Just start, okay? Not because we need your money, but because God wants you to be a generous, loving person. So give, you know, monetarily. But it's not just money. It could be your home. I was talking with a buddy uh, uh, just recently, and uh, he, he comes up to me and he introduces me uh, to a young lady who's going to be uh, living in their house for the next however long, because circumstances have dictated that this is going to be a best situation for this young lady who's you know finishing out her high school career to to live in this home, and she's a you know seems like just a sweet girl, and I know this couple, and I'm like, and, and I'm talking to my buddy after a while, and I'm like, hey bro, you know tell me the story, he tells me the whole story, and, I'm, and at the end of it, I'm like, man, thank you. Thank you for living out what God is teaching us in his word. Because it's not your house. It's God's house to do with what he wants. And I'm not saying be unwise and just, but, but as God prompts and gives you opportunity, be available with what, with what he's given you. Live generously because, okay, it comes down to this. God has been so generous with us. Does everybody get that we have way beyond what any of us deserve? And some of us are like, oh, well, Mark, I'm awesome. You don't know me. I'm awesome. I deserve everything. I've worked hard. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying, you know, God's success story in you. Good on you. God bless you. But never lose sight of the fact that God chose to have you to be born here and, and not in some slum in, 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 in you know, Cambodia. And I'm not, this gets weird, but, but, but understand that everything that we have is the grace of God to us. And if you have that mentality, it's easier to be generous. Little children, he says in verse 18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
I keep kicking the Jenga. So three, uh, just a few things as we close. First one's this. Which family are you in? Let's just go all the way back to the beginning, and he talks about the children of God, the children of the devil. Uh, the, the, and this is for the people who kind of knew this story. Or, or you thought, you know, uh, being a Christian was just going to church or, or coming from a Christian family. Like, I'll just kind of, you know, it'll genetically be passed on to me. No. It, the, the, the faith that God wants you to have has to be your choice. And you have to realize that you're an old man until you receive by faith what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And in that faith, become a new man. So which family are you in? And if you're in the old man's man, come on up and I'll talk to you about becoming a new man about finding faith in Jesus Christ. I'd love to do that. Uh, second question, which house do you frequent most? This is for all the Newmans, okay? So we can kind of go back and back, back and forth between our new address and our old one. And, and, and uh, kind of a, uh, a, a related question is this, what relationship uh, needs more Newman choices from you? Like what, what, what relationship in your life uh, are you just kind of prone uh, to old man tactics. We talked about that in our last series about no offense, but there's, there's that guy in our life, that girl in our life, right, who it's just easier to be hateful and bitter and, and angry towards. Now, I'm going to pray that God gives you love towards that person this week, and I want you to pray that as well. The last thing is this. Are you living generously? And by God's grace, I know a lot of us consider and say, yeah, I feel like I am. But here's what I want to challenge us with. Be willing in this next week and in the rest of your life to, to raise the lid on your generosity. Do it for two reasons. Can I share with you why you do it? First of all, I'm going to be careful with guarantees, but, but I'm going to be pretty sure that if you actually allow God to prompt you this week in some way to live generously in ways that you're not used to living, that God will use that in your life to affirm um, his place in you, his, his presence in you. He'll, he'll bless you, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not why we do it, but he will bless you as you give. I, that's been my experience. Every time I've given, I haven't missed what I gave, and I've been blessed by the fact that it was able to bless someone else. Are you with me? So I, I won't guarantee that. It might not work the first time, but eventually that's where generosity leads. It's a joy to take what God has given us and steward it for the sake of him and others. It's a joy, Okay. But here's the second reason. You will never know the ways that your seemingly meaningless generosity will impact the lives of those that you're being generous with. I know this for a fact because there's been times in the life of our family where God through someone else has provided for us things that we've been praying for months for. Things that we've been, you know, just asking God for, for you know, a sign of something. And, and all of a sudden someone says, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I'll, I'll give you one specific. Um, Eleanor and I uh, were young parents. Our kids were just little. Uh, I, uh, it was back in the days where there was uh, no credit cards, you know, like, uh, like uh, or uh, no, no ways to get money out of the bank with the ATMs. Those weren't around. And uh, I know it's old. Phones were on the wall back then. Anyway, uh, but we, and we did, there was this thing, some of you are younger, there was this thing called a checkbook. And you could actually write on paper and actually receive money from a bank using this thing called a check. And uh, anyway, uh, I took all of those with me on a youth trip that I was on. I was a youth pastor, and in my brilliance as a husband and a father, I took all of the resources that could get us money uh, or get my wife and my kids money for, for a four-day weekend. So my, my wife didn't have any way to, to go out and buy groceries. She ate all the stuff that you got, like, sitting in your pantry right now that you're like, I probably won't eat that. They ate all that. Are you with me? Like all the peanut butter was gone when I, and so it was Saturday or Sunday morning. I was coming home that, that night and, uh, 
And owner's like, all right, Lord, we ate everything in the fridge and in the pantry. Um, I trust that you're going to give us something for lunch, but just figure it out. And she's walking our kids back to our minivan after the second service at the church we were part of. And one of the youth leaders in our, one of our best friends at the time still, but one of the youth leaders in our youth group uh, came out to me, and he's, his name's Dave, and he looks at Eleanor. He's like, look, I know Mark's off with all the kids at this retreat. I have no idea why I'm doing this. It doesn't make any sense, but God told me to give you the money in my pocket. I got eight bucks. Here you go. And he walked back to his car. In those days, $8 bought three five-packs of nuggets at Wendy's, one large fry, and one Coke for everybody to share. And that was our meal every time we went through the drive-thru at Wendy's. That was lunch that day. And that went into the little book of God's answered prayers because my wife drove to church that morning saying, God, I don't know how we're going to do lunch, but you figure it out. And Dave was God's answer to that prayer. And mm, eight bucks, people. You got that in the cushions of your couch right now. It's meaningless on the grand scale of things. But those eight dollars pushed the heart of my wife and, and my heart, consequently, in, in, in amazing ways towards faith and love for Jesus. So be generous. It'll change you. It'll definitely change the lives of those that you're generous with. Can you stand? We'll be closed with a word of prayer. God, thanks for a great day to celebrate seniors. A blessing over all these students as they head off into what's next. Uh, thanks for being generous with them, uh, for teaching them what it is to live a, a Newman life. And I pray that you'd continue to do that in our seniors. For the rest of us, God, thanks for all that you've given us. May we be ready to give from what you've given. May we be ready to love because you've loved us. May we honor you in this life. Teach us to love and teach us to give, I pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, God bless you. Have a great week. Hey, thanks again for joining us for worship today. It was so good to be with you. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. If this is your first time to a worship service, we would love to meet you. If you stop by this area of